Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are uh, delighted this morning to have uh, a couple special guests with us, one of whom is going to share the word uh, this morning. Jonathan Domingo, um, oh, a few years back, was, uh, took a church in Ensenada, Mexico, and uh, the Lord blessed it from, oh, about 100 people to about 2,000 people. And he was pastoring that church, and God used that church and is using it today. But at a certain point, Jonathan felt called to partner up with far-reaching ministries. Now, some of you, who knows Wes Bentley from Far Reaching Ministries. It's been a while since Wes has been here. So a ministry down in the Sudan, you know, training up chaplains to go, you know, protect women and children, to disciple, uh, and, and so on. Incredible ministry, not only there, but in 20 plus other countries around the world, making disciples. And, uh, you know, last time Wes was here, he was telling hair-raising stories. Um, in, you know, ministering in just super dangerous places. But Jonathan is here with his sister, Debbie. But Jonathan, for the last year, has been working with far-reaching ministries, and in particular, in their now reaching into uh, Latin American countries and ministering to children and raising up disciples and pastors and planting churches. And so we have uh, been connected to far-reaching ministries uh, for a lot of years, and uh, I consider Wes um, a friend and a blessing of a brother. And so I'm delighted to have uh, his protege, his partner in ministry, Jonathan Domingo here this morning to share with us. So let's welcome this morning, Jonathan Domingo. Alrighty, well, God bless you. It's great to be with you. And if you have your Bible, if you could turn in it with me to Mark chapter 4. And as Pastor Greg said, uh, I've been working with Far Reaching Ministries for about a year. And I didn't see that many hands raised when he asked about Far Reaching Ministries. So I'll just give you a brief update uh, as to what we do as a ministry. Far Reaching Ministries was started 25 years ago because our founder, Wes Bentley, was a missionary in Russia, but he was a former Marine, and so the missions agency he was with at the moment asked him to get involved in what was at that time the Sudan Civil War, where the Muslim North would do raids into the Christian South, and they would kidnap children, and they would make them part of their children um, or rather, they would make the children part of their armies, and so it was very famous. It was a National Geographic, you know, eight-year-olds with automatic weapons, and so they learned that targeting the orphanages was an easy target because you'd have 100 kids and maybe a dozen or so well-intentioned women that were unable to protect these orphanages, so they would just come and steal all, all the children. And so he began arming and training the local pastors to become chaplains and protect their villages, and then that evolved into creating safe um, areas within the villages where they could come in to rest at night, and that has evolved to where now we have a full-blown castle with about 
three or 400 people living there full time. We've been able to train over 700 chaplains. We have 400 active chaplains in the South Sudan military. They have uh, American Western style training. So they've become, not only are they Christian pastors, but they're like the special forces within the Sudan army. When the president's house was raided a few, year back, a few years back, he called in the chaplains to protect him from an attempted coup. So um, a, a very different, kind of ministry, you know, usually you, you hear of ministries and it's not something that is bellicose or, you know, uh, that is, is so steeped into war. Uh, so with that very unique know-how, we started uh, growing and expanding into different parts of the world. And so about 10 years ago, we began something that we call ghost operations, which is the invisible hand of the Western church training and, and funding uh, pastors in underground churches in radical Islamic countries. And so we have uh, about 400 pastors in these very, very dangerous countries. And so, for example, when Afghanistan fell about two years ago, we had 22 pastors there that we knew that they would all be killed for their faith. Uh, the way, not all Muslim countries, but in radical Muslim countries and with governments like the Taliban, um, the, the worst crime, and this is across the board for all Muslims, the worst crime a Muslim can commit uh, in their worldview is to abandon their Islamic faith for any other faith. And so when there's a Christian pastor that is evangelizing, he is seen kind of as the perpetrator of the worst crime and would, would envelop the kind of, or, or, or evoke rather, the kind of feelings that maybe a child rapist would in the West. That, that's how much hatred they would have towards a Christian pastor. And so what they do is that when they are found, they will kill the pastor, their spouse, their parents, and their children. They'll go a generation up and a generation down. And so with the Taliban taking over, you remember people holding on to airplanes as they were taking off because they knew what was coming for them with that government. And so we had between the pastors, their families, and their small churches, 200 people there. So we, we mounted a rescue operation where a group of former Marines and Special Forces, and Wes was on that trip, flew into a neighboring country, trekked over the mountains to meet our people, and we were able to evacuate them. And, and we were able to rescue all 200 of our, of our people. And we continue to do rescue operations into Afghanistan. To this day, we've been able to rescue about 2,000 people that would have otherwise been murdered. And so, yeah, a, a, a very encouraging thing. We're involved in Burma, we're involved in Nigeria, we're involved in Ukraine. We have over 30 chaplains that we sponsor in Ukraine. We've built 2,000 houses, we're feeding 15,000 people. And uh, whenever we talk about Ukraine, there is a sense in which people are uneasy with the subject because it has become politicized and there are questions that people are asking. Uh, should we be spending that much money overseas? Uh, the, the question I hear often is, isn't the government in Ukraine corrupt? I'm Mexican, born and raised. I lived, in, I lived in Mexico to this day. English is my second language. And so living in a third world country, I know a thing or two about corrupt governments. And I can tell you, as a matter of fact, that the government in Ukraine is corrupt. But I've also heard that there is some corruption in the United States government. I might be wrong. <laughs> Don't quote me on that one. And so we understand that governments around the world tend to be corrupt, and so we don't work through the government, we work through our pastors, because bottom line is we're not a humanitarian aid um, organization. 
We're a missions ministry, and our bottom line is souls meeting Jesus and people's lives being transformed by the power of the gospel and church planting. And so we work with our pastors. And having said all this, you can imagine we're a very large organization. We're a very busy ministry. And so we're not looking idly for more things to do. We're busy with what God has given to us. Nonetheless, as I said, we have a very unique know-how and wherewithal to be able to do things that others maybe wish they could but don't have that ability. And so whenever opportunities arise, we try to, to avail ourselves to those opportunities. And that happened about a year and a half ago, almost two years now. In Latin America, Pastor Joe Foch of Calvary, Philadelphia, a large Calvary, contacted Wes and said, hey, we have a missionary in an undisclosed country in, in South America, and he's rescuing children that are used for sex trafficking and organ harvesting. Um, he's rescuing them from the cartel. He's working with local law enforcement, but he's by himself. When the kids are rescued, they're getting put into the system, and there's no, there's no special care for them being the victims of, of human trafficking. This seems right up your alley, and is there anything you can do? So I will be talking about human trafficking, and I do see some children in the sanctuary. If you don't want them to hear, I try not to be too graphic, but there will be some things that will be unavoidably graphic. And so just a heads up, if you would like to take your kids to kids ministry, this might be the moment to do so. So anyways, we were made aware of this situation. And so we decided to send uh, one of our board members. And this board member was in the intelligence service for the United States government for 25 years, 10 of those years in the highest ring of leadership in the intelligence service and a man who speaks eight languages. I saw him earlier this year and I asked him, how many countries have you been to this year? And he said, oh, probably about 80 in one calendar year. Just a very um, smart, well-prepared, has been on a lot of operatives. And so we asked him to go on one of these operations. And what happens is, and one of the big problems is, like in any country, you have corrupt cops and good cops. And so in a lot of the operatives, it's unsuccessful because they'll get tipped off by corrupt cops. And so in this particular mission that our board member went on, it was unsuccessful in the sense that the cartel was gone by the time they got to this home. But even though the cartel was gone, when they went in, and this will be the, the more intense thing I'll say in, in my message, um, they found the lifeless bodies of three children that had their organs removed. And so when he came back to the United States, he said, I know we're doing a million things. This is something that we have to put our entire weight behind. And so even though, like I said, we're involved in 36 different countries, uh, a year and a half ago or so, we have put our entire shoulder into this into this project. And so we were able to purchase a home in this country with a capacity for 30 children. We were able to rescue all 30 children and get to capacity. We extended the, the space to be able to house 45 kids. So we rescued 15 more children. And now we're in the process, almost done, of expanding to 60 children. So we'll be able to rescue 15 more children. We have four other Latin American countries that have asked us to get involved, high up officials hearing about what we're doing. And so we're expanding as well, not only our first home, but working in different countries. We were able to adopt two existing homes in a different country over the last couple months. And so they have 30 kids. So between the 40 
45 kids that we have at our home and the 30 kids that we've adopted, we have 75 children at our care, and absolutely every single one of those 75 children were rescued from human trafficking. And so, it is, it is very encouraging to me to think we've been able to make that amount of progress um, in such a short amount of time. And now we're facing different challenges, because as we grow, it, it's not the kind of thing that can grow exponentially, because uh, for our homes, for our home where we have 45 kids, we have about 28 staff members. It's very, very um, uh, labor-intensive, because we have psychiatrists, we have full-time doctors, we have psychologists, we have Christian counselors, uh, we have social workers, we have the rescue teams, we have armed security. And so it, it makes the, the, the projects complicated to grow. But we're absolutely committed to rescuing more children. Now, recently we have been in conversations as a team saying, we gotta go a step further. It is not enough just to rescue the children, because this is the, the horrifying and dark fact is that you rescue a child and they'll go get another one. And so it's not enough just to rescue them. There needs to be a, a, an attempt to correct the root cause. And the root cause of this is evil men that are willing to exploit children for money, evil men that are abusing children sexually um, and, and have no moral you know, guide spiritually to avoid such things happening. And just people in this, this satanic, demonic mindset that are willing to harm children. And so we are convinced that the most useful way to end human trafficking is to continue to plant churches in places that are controlled by the cartel. And so about a month ago, we, we took kind of the pilot program and we have six pastors that have planted churches recently in really, really dark places. I was talking with a DEA agent two weeks ago, and I'm not gonna mention the cartels, but he said this specific cartel is the most um, technologically advanced cartel he's ever come in contact with. And we have one of these church planters in this city. And there was a, um, an attempt by two members of this cartel to kidnap an American FBI officer in that third world country. And when they were unsuccessful, it resulted in a pursuit between the local federal policemen and these narcos. And they broke into my friend's church and there was a shootout from cops outside, the cartel inside, they ended up breaking in, the cartel members were hiding in the bathroom, they were shot dead in my friend's church bathroom. And he, as a pastor, did not feel right to ask anybody else to go clean, so it was up to him to clean up the blood from the bathroom, to patch the bullet holes in the wall to prepare for Sunday service. And it's, it's just the reality. I, I know that in the West, um, we, we kind of go two, two directions. We think that anything that's not American, it's like the Wild West and it's like horrifying. And I, like I said, I live in Mexico and I don't live in a safe part of Mexico, but there's parts of Mexico like Merida. Merida was voted the second safe, not voted, um, through statistics of violent crimes and murders. It's the second safest city in the Western Hemisphere, second only to Quebec, beating out every major city in the United States. So there are places in Mexico that are really safe. There are places in Mexico that are completely unsafe and absolutely run by the cartel. 
And so we are targeting those places and saying those are the places where we need to plant healthy churches that are planting more churches. All right, having said that, um, you might say, what on earth can we look at in scripture that sheds light in such a dark subject? And you might be surprised to know that this is, in a sense, what the gospel is, what the story of Jesus is, that Jesus left heaven to come to the dark, to come to this world, to come to the broken and the needy and the hurting. And there's one specific story that I think shows this most deeply. So if you could read with me, this is Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I will read through Mark chapter 5 verse five, and then we'll pray and we'll consider it together. It says, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, um, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for the opportunity to consider your word. And as I stand before this beautiful church and just encourage them as to what other members of the body are doing around the world, I just pray that we would know that you have called us into a greater purpose for your kingdom. So I pray that you would awaken us to that reality, that we do have the honor and privilege of being imitators of Christ and imitators of Christ's heart to reach the broken. In Jesus' name, amen. There's two really quick things I want to point out before we get into the story. One is that this person did not have just one demon, but rather he had an army of demons. They call themselves legion. A Roman legion is a unit of five to 6,000 soldiers. And so when Jesus casts out the demons, they go into 2,000 pigs. And if you've read the gospel narratives, as I'm sure most of you have, you know that having one demon is horrific. I cannot imagine having a multitude of demons, an army of demons. And so it tells us that he lived in the tombs, that he was cutting himself, that he was crying out, that he had superhuman strength. And what I see is that that is the person that Jesus goes to. Jesus goes to the person that everybody else has forgotten about. I'll take that a step further. Jesus goes to the person that everybody else has abandoned. This man was abandoned to his fate. This man was, was feared by all men. This man was living in tombs. And Jesus says, he is the one I want to rescue. The second thing I want to point out that I didn't have time to read is that after Jesus heals this man, he gets right back in his boat and crosses right over the Sea of Galilee again, showing us that the only thing on Jesus' agenda for rescuing this person, or rather for this trip over the sea, was rescuing this person. That Jesus was willing to cross the sea and face the storm to rescue one person. I have four points for us based on this story. The first one is, if you're taking notes, the demonic is real. C.S. Lewis said 
that one of the worst mistakes people make in the West is that they live as though the demonic did not exist. I think if I asked most of you, do you believe that demons exist? I think most people would say yes. But the reality is that even though we believe theoretically that the demonic exists, we don't give much time and attention to the reality that the answer to the evil that we see is that the demonic is real. And whether it be tribal feuds in Africa that ends up in the slaughtering of entire villages, you know, women, elderly, and children included, whether it be war crimes in Ukraine. We had one of our um, chaplains captured, tortured, and killed by, by the Russian government, which Russians are supposed to be protected under international law. What we're seeing in Israel and in Palestine, just the amount of death and pain and, and evil that is happening around the world, it is, it is disheartening. But we need to step back and understand that behind the evil, there is the demonic. And can there be anything more demonic than the exploitation of children for, for sexual gratification? Can there be anything more demonic? And here's the thing. Most people think that, that human trafficking is somebody goes and steals a child at a Walmart or a mall and then sells them. And that might happen, and that does happen more in the United States, but in these poor countries, they don't go in and steal them. They'll go into highly impoverished um, parts of the, of the country, they'll go to places where it's indigenous and, you know, girls are getting impregnated at 13, 14, they have absolutely no money and they'll go in and they'll buy the kids from the time they're months old and then they, they will have them. Or the other thing that we've seen a lot is prostitutes, drug addicts, or people that are extremely poor actually being the ones that set up makeshift brothels to abuse their own children. When you look at that, there's only one answer. I heard somebody say once, I've seen so much evil in the world that I can't possibly believe that God exists. My rebuttal to that is, I've seen so much evil in the world that I can't possibly believe, can't possibly believe that demons don't exist. The demonic is real. Yet, at our heart, as a ministry, we have this slogan. We run to the places where other people are running from. We'll go to those places where there's a real risk. Like I said, we've had 72 of our chaplains killed We've had over 30 of our pastors in the Middle East killed. Uh, we had, in Latin America, the wife of the director kidnapped. We were able to get her back. Um, and this is just a reality. And that leads me to my second point. There will always be opposition. I don't know why, but as a Christian, you will face hardship. And a lot of the times, this, this hardship will be most manifest when you decide to stand up and be obedient to God's call in your life. Usually, it's not until you decide to be obedient to God's purpose in your life that you start seeing real opposition. Because the moment you stand up to make a difference, there will be a big target on your chest for the enemy to take aim at. But it is my experience that you will be in opposition, not only because the enemy is running around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour, but also God in his sovereignty, his, his foresight will allow you to go through painful things in order to create in you a character that is capable of going through the things that you will have to be going through in order to be used by God. And this is what Jesus said. 
He, he promised this. In this world, you will have tribulations. I grew up in the 90s where having Bible verses, you know, in a bumper sticker or on your fridge or on a mug or, you know, sewn into a pillow was very popular. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me was one of the most popular. You know what I never saw printed on a mug? In this world, you will have tribulation, you know, as you're pouring your morning coffee. <laughs> that is a promise that in the West we have chosen to forget. But the reality is, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's not that it'll be safe and it's not that it'll be easy. It's that you'll never be alone. And God allows these things to prepare you. One of the moments where I felt, you know, I was just a regular pastor of a regular church for 12 years. And, you know, I didn't have specific training in, you know, uh, trauma or, or these things. And so it's been a learning curve for me. But one of the things I realized is that God prepares you. And we were in Mexico, we had several bands and we would do tours and we were going through a really um, sketchy part of Mexico and that's to put it lightly. And we got stood up at gunpoint on the highway. We had a 40 passenger bus, a 15 passenger van and a couple cars and a white pickup truck sped past us on a two lane highway, blocked the highway and four armed men started walking towards our bus. And so we attempted to U a U-turn it's a long bus and it's a two-lane highway, so it turned into a three-point turn, which turned into like the slowest, like 13-point turn, <laughs> trying to get around and get out of there as we have screaming women looking, or everybody's screaming, looking down the barrel of, the, of a couple automatic weapons. And so we're finally able to get around and drive back to the city where we were at. And I called my father to tell him we were going to cancel the next event. And my dad has been a Calvary Chapel missionary for over 45 years, old school, you know, they don't make them that way anymore. And I would call them expecting a little bit of sympathy, <laughs> which I should have known better. So I called them, said, Pops, we're going to have to cancel the next event. We just got stood up at gunpoint. You know, this is a legitimate concern for safety. And he said without, he said without hesitation, don't cancel. If you have to go by yourself, go by yourself, but don't cancel. Christians have for the past 2,000 years have been putting themselves in harm's way because they believe in the power of the gospel. And if you cancel, you're telling the city that their city is too dangerous for Jesus to be preached in. If you have to go by yourself, go by yourself. Then I realized, a lot of people have asked me, are you okay with this? I've had conversations with my wife. I'm not doing any of the operations and we're not doing any operations close to my hometown. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm speaking out against human trafficking and, and you know, organized crime. And I live in a city that is run by organized crime. And I have been approached by people saying, do you not fear for your safety? And one thing I've learned just from experience like that and from what we've seen in other places is there are some things in life that are worth dying for. And the rescuing of children that are being sexually exploited, that is something that not only I, but every single person in our organization is willing to die for. Because if I make it to 80 or if I make it to 40, I don't care as long as I hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Do I want to see my kids grow old? Absolutely. Do you want to you know, see my kids get married and have kids? Absolutely. But we're not willing to stand idly by as God's children are hurt in this manner. There will be opposition. Point number three, Jesus can calm the storm. I'm going to go through the final two a little bit faster. Jesus can calm the storm. 
our confidence is not that we won't face storms. Our confidence is that Jesus is with us every step of the way. And for you personally, the moment you decide to stand up, there will be opposition. I find it funny. I, there were so many people that became Christians at the church, and this was so, it's not funny, but it, it was so common, and it was so recurring that it, it almost felt funny. There'd be people that would come up to me and say, Pastor, you know, I just became a Christian. I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying, and I'm doing everything right. I just have this one question. Why are bad things still happening to me? <laughs> and I would just look at them, and I'd say, Dear brother, trust me things will get worse. <laughs> I, I might be wrong, I might be fatalistic, but it's been my experience that the longer you're a Christian and the deeper you are in making a difference for God's kingdom, the enemy will take notice and things do not get easier. But two things, you get stronger and God is with you. And that is enough. And that is enough. We will face opposition, but Jesus can calm the storm. This is more powerful than any opposition. And lastly, point number four, do it for the one. Like I said at the beginning, Jesus crossed the sea, faced the storm to rescue one person that was living a hellish experience. And then he got right back in his boat and he crossed. Jesus was willing to, and this is something we see in Jesus all the time, Jesus was willing to be interrupted, you know, go from the multitudes, be interrupted by one person, because Jesus is trying to show us a principle. And that principle is that the way you change the world is by helping one person at a time. When we talk about human trafficking, it is overwhelming. And I don't talk about statistics, I won't in this message, because it really does feel like, like um, it is disheartening and overwhelming. But if we look at it like statistics, it, it just, it, it, like I said, it, it, it works terribly in your mind. But when you look at it as stories and individuals, you can say, okay, I can make a difference in one person's life. This was the reality for the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan did not save a city or a country. He helped one person. And this is the big idea. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. And in so doing, you will change the world. Because this is what Jesus says, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I think that is maybe the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. Because most people, when they talk about the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, what they think it means in their mind is that we, the church, will be protected from the demonic attacks. I just talked about that. Yes, that, that, that is in fact true, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. How do I know that? Because gates are not a weapon. Nobody attacks with a gate. If you go to battle and your weapon of choice is a gate, my friend, you have chosen the sloppiest, most clumsy weapon at your disposal. Gates are part of a wall. Storm the gates is the idea. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, it's not talking about the church being protected from hell. It's talking about hell being unable to withstand the attacks of the church. When the church goes on the offensive, there is no weapon in hell strong enough to stop the church from taking ground. That's what Jesus is saying. But I find it fascinating that Jesus did not say that the gates of hell will not prevail against the person. 
He says, I will build my church. It is us collectively that have the strength to take ground. What does this mean? That God expects every member of his body to live with purpose. I said it a second ago, I grew up in the 90s, and one of the big things in the early 2000s in Christianity, you know, if you ever went to a Christian camp in the 2000s, you probably heard something like this, God has called you to be a world changer, you know? And you believe it when you're 13. Then you're 33 and you're like, I'm not changing anything, you know? <laughs> that was extremely ambitious of them to tell a 13-year-old that you're going to change the world, but we believed it. But God has not in fact, called any one of us here to change the world. But he has called you to change somebody's world. And that will, in consequence, change the world. Another way to say it is God has not asked you to place the burdens of the world on your shoulders. He has asked you to be faithful to whatever he puts in front of you today. God has not asked you to do everything that there is to do. God has called you to be obedient to what he has asked you to do as an individual. And when you do that, two things happen. You made a difference for one person. But you know what else happens? You're going to encourage another Christian brother and sister that will see your life and says, hey, this isn't Billy Graham. This isn't a big shot Christian pastor. This is my neighbor. This is my friend. This is my mechanic. This is my you know, kids teacher at school, and they have the same limitations I do, and they have the same issues I do, and they have decided to be faithful to what God has called them to, maybe I can too. And that is why the body of Christ is so strong, because there's a lot of us. I don't know if you've looked around, there's a lot of people that are willing to come to church. My question is, is that same amount of people willing to say, I will be a Christian, I will make a difference, I will make a change, I will make an impact? Because once again, trust me, when we work together, there is no power on earth strong enough to, start, to stop rather the church from taking ground. If it comes down to this, do for one what you wish you could do for all. I want to show you a video. The first few seconds are a little intense, but then it's just the girls playing at the, at the home that we have purchased. And so I just want to give you a visual. So once again, it's not just stories, but you can actually have a, a face to the story. So if the media team could please help me uh, put the video on the screen.
I know that watching that video is just emotionally uh, very difficult because on, on one side it's so beautiful seeing these beautiful princesses play and have a great time and play with a dog and play the piano and at the same time you think, I mean, who, who would do harm to you know, a, a beautiful little girl like that? And one of the questions I get often in regards to this video is, um, the little blonde girl, you know, who, who's the protagonist. And people just assume that she's maybe a missionary's kid, especially with how lively she is. She would appear to, to not have had the issues that these other girls had. Um, but she's not a missionary's kid. The reason she's blonde is because her mother's a prostitute and she was impregnated by a Westerner. Um, her, her sister, her, yeah, her, her sister is, is really um, tan but it's just different fathers. And because, she, and she was um, trafficked by her own mother who was a prostitute. And because she was blonde, she would charge a premium. And she actually has some of the worst stories of abuse out of all of our kids. And it, you know, it, like I said, it is so hard even to get these words out because you know, it, it's, it's, it's sickening. And then you see the light in their eyes come back on. And my favorite moment in that entire video um, is when she's playing the piano and she looks over and smiles and it's just the cutest smile. And you know that line at the bottom, a restoration of their childhood. When these children are rescued, it takes months for them to begin the restoration process because they have been so accustomed to survival um, that they come with that same mindset and then it takes them a while to, okay, I am going to eat, okay, I am going to be taken care of, okay, I am going to have a warm shower, okay, I'm going to have a clean bed. And it takes them a few months for all this adrenaline from survival mode to chill and then all these issues obviously start coming up and we work through them. But when they're first rescued, you can see in their eyes, and it's hard to explain, but you can just see the, 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 
I, I don't want to put it negatively, I'll put it positively, the lack of brightness in their eyes. And you can see that brightness. Uh, it, well, to me, one of the, the, the best ways to describe it is, like I said, we have three homes and we have one boy's home. And it's, it's the smallest home, we have four boys there. And we have one boy there that wants to be a lawyer. A lot of these kids want to be lawyers or social workers or um, doctors or psychologists because those are the people that have helped them the most. So one of the four boys wants to be a lawyer. And the other three boys want to be what every single Latin America boy wants to be when they grow up, professional soccer players. <laughs> and I love that because it means that they're allowed to dream the dreams that a child is supposed to dream. You know, and not worry about survival, but allow them to have the, the, the joyful, youthful aspirations of a normal 13 or 14 year old. Um, like I said, we have a boys home and I was so excited when I knew we were gonna have a boys home so I went out to, to meet the kids. Like I said, two of the homes that we have were pre-existing, we didn't start them. And so I was just excited to, to meet the kids and um, I'll end with this story. And there was one boy there that was 11, the youngest boy, and I have an 11-year-old son. So immediately I knew there was gonna be a connection. I was really excited, probably too excited to meet him. So, so I went up to him and I put my hand on his shoulder and it just, it, he, he was very afraid. And it made me feel bad that I had been so you know, um, enthusiastic. But in spending time with him, like I said, there's no language barrier, I'm Mexican, I speak fluent Spanish, and. So during, we spent all day with them, we took them to the mall, we you know, bought the one who wants to be a lawyer, a three-piece suit, looked very smart, and, and just took them to buy ice cream and McDonald's and just have a good time with them. And this young boy had a, um, had a teddy bear with him the whole time, and he, he held it up here, and you could just tell that this teddy bear was like his little emotional buddy. And it, you know, it was endearing, almost like you know, cartoons where they'll hold a, a little blanket or something like that, it felt, felt like that. And, um, you know, just after you spend the day with them, they, they, they um, develop some trust and we just had a great time and, and none of that original tension or fear was there by the end of the day. But then it was time to leave and I said, hey, I've got to go. And he said, wait, 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 don't go. And he, um, man, I'm emotional today. He ran up to his room and he grabbed another teddy bear that was so worn that it doesn't even have eyes. And he said, I want you to have this. Now obviously, immediately you're in a dilemma because you say, do I take, this is like his family, this is like his buddy. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to offend him by saying no, and I knew that he had a different teddy bear that he'd been holding on to that day, and so I got down on one knee and I told him, this is the best gift anybody has ever given to me. And so I have it right in the middle of my desk, I see it every day. And when I got home, I was so excited to share with my kids. And so I, I have three kids, an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 2-year-old. The 2-year-old's too young to, you know, rationalize anything. But the 8-year-old and, and, and the 11-year-old, I tell them that daddy rescues children that have been stolen. That's the extent of what I tell them. And so I, I, as soon as I got to my house, I took my suitcase up to my room, and I said, hey, I want you guys to come. I want to share a story with you. And, and I opened up my suitcase, and I showed them the teddy bear, and my eight-year-old daughter says, that is so ugly, Daddy. <laughs> like, no, it's not. And um, I told them, you know, that this belonged to a young boy that um, we rescued. And my daughter said what any eight-year-old daughter would say. She said, that's great, Daddy. Did you give him back to his parents? 
And he was rescued because he, his father had a makeshift brothel where he had him working for a year. That's where he was rescued from. And, you know, like I said, there's three things. One is the rescue. But the other thing, which is even more important, is the restoration, is creating a home where they're a family, where they have people caring for them, where they don't feel exposed and vulnerable. And like I said, we have so many people there to help them and work with them. And the third thing is, is the church planting side of it. So it's not just the rescuing, but it's, it's the, the restoration of the children and the transformation of the culture. And, you know, seeing these children change, um, like I said, there's an existing home, and I know I told you that that was the final story. I'll be very brief for this story. Um, there was one girl who, I can't go through her whole story. She's got one of the most intense stories, but the bottom line is she was trafficked from the age of five. She was indigenous, didn't speak Spanish. She spoke her tribal tongue. She was rescued. This home that we have has existed for 15 years. She was the first girl that was rescued at the age of five, and now she's 19. Um, and she is trilingual and studying international business. And we're going to fly her into our hometown, and she's going to spend Christmas with my family. So I'm so excited about that. Um, and seeing the pictures of when she was rescued, she was um, living on the streets, just a, a very... I, I, like I said, English is my second language, so I don't want to misspeak, but it's just a very pitiful, sorry-looking situation. I, I don't know if that came out the wrong way, but you know what I'm trying to say. And to see her now, just an elegant, well-put-together young woman who my, my wife's discipling her, has weekly meetings with her, and it's clear that she's got traumas that will be healing you know, her entire life. But you would see her, and you would have never guessed that she went through what she went through because there was restoration. And I want that for all 75 kids in our care. And I want that for um, our prayers that we get to rescue hundreds, if not thousands of children that will one day be able to grow up and say, somebody cared, somebody came for me. You know, my life's different. Um, I went a, a bit long, so I'm just gonna close. The, the way we raise support for this is through sponsorships. And so I have two ministries that you can get involved with. The first one is our church planters. Like I said, we have six church planters, another seven in the shoot, and it, the sponsorship is $75 a month. This obviously does not cover their entire expense, so we have to raise several sponsorship per each pastor. But if you'd like to sp sponsor a pastor, it's $75 a month. Like I said, I believe this so deeply because I've seen the transformation that it is to have. Uh, my mother's dad, my maternal grandfather, was a narco that was killed when my mom was a, a kid. Uh, a very high up narco. Apparently my mom's maiden name in this city still means something because he was that that influential in a negative way. And he was killed and my mother was a very poor um, growing up because their father was killed and they pretty much had to run for their life. My family's kind of scattered all over the place because of that. And my mom became a Christian. And if you know anything about psychology, you know that, you, that for some reason you'll be attracted to people that have the same character flaws as your parents. And it is very natural for the daughter of a mobster to marry a, a mobster. 
And so my father could have been a drug dealer if my mom became a Christian and got married to a Christian missionary and pastor. <laughs> so my dad's a pastor because my mother was transformed by the gospel. So I, I, I know the power of the church. I know the power of church planting. So I know emotionally every single one of you wants to sponsor a kid, but I would ask for you to prayerfully consider sponsoring a pastor. And also, we'd like to sponsor a kid at $75 a month. This is for their care, but also uh, we, we, we budget extra for the rescue process as well. And so, like I said, if you'd like to sponsor either of them at $75, it's super important for us when we go out to speak to emphasize that uh, we want to be biblical and what the Bible teaches is that you should be faithful with your finances to your local church and you give to missions above and beyond that. So please do not take from whatever you budget towards your church to sponsor one of these kids. Um, that, that's not the way it should work. If you are financially unable to be faithful to your local church and sponsor a child, I would just say stick to being faithful to your local church and God will bless you. And this is something that I say every weekend. If you want to sponsor a child and you're currently unable to, God sees that and God will give you the opportunities to do so. For the majority of people, you probably can be faithful in your local church and sponsor a child. And it might be a stretch and it might be difficult. And if you choose to, God bless you. And for some people, maybe $75 a month would be, wouldn't push the needle on your budget, and you might want to do a pastor and a kid or several kids, whatever God places on your heart. But this is the thing I found. Evil men do not ask for permission to do evil, and many good men are sitting around because they don't know what to do. And I'm convinced that if good men showed the resolve and initiative that evil men show, this would not pass. This would not fly. But like I said, uh, evil men have a tenacity uh, for their bottom line. And we as God's people cannot allow them to go around and do their evil without facing opposition, without facing somebody who, who's the counterweight to that. But we need to show that same tenacity, not only that same tenacity, an even greater tenacity and an even greater resolve. We have code names for everything we do. And our code name for the home you saw is Little Starfish. There's a story where a bunch of starfish were pulled out to the sand from a storm and a kid is throwing them back into the ocean and a person says, you're wasting your time, there's too many of them. What you're doing doesn't matter. And as he throws one more in, he says, it matter to that one. We ought to do for one what we wish we could do for all. Jesus, I pray that you would help us continue to make a difference. I thank you so much for this lovely church. I pray that you would bless them, bless every single person here. I pray a blessing for Pastor Greg and his family as well. And just um, thank you so much for the opportunity. To, to make a difference. And I pray that we would continue to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Okay. So if you are a follower of Jesus, spirit-filled, saved, sanctified, all the Bible words, um, time to get up and go to the communion table. If all those Bible words, you're going, I'm a Christian. I don't know if that, I'm that kind of Christian with all those words. Or maybe you've had a rough week, a rough month, or feel like you're not worthy. Well, you need to go to the table. Uh, the communion table is um, a place where we can do business with the Lord, where we are confronted again with the fact that God became flesh, God the Son, 
gave his life, died willingly for us, bearing our sins and iniquities upon the cross and paying the full penalty for our guilt and sin and then making a way for us to be reconciled to God so that if we're in Christ, there's no condemnation for us. So if you, you might be a bruised reed or a smoldering wick this morning, you're just dragging spiritually. Let the Lord restore you. Let him renew you. Receive his grace. It's always grace, all about grace. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to give you the opportunity right now to become one. And how do you do that? It's, it's a faith thing. You are saved by grace through faith. And so you put your faith in Jesus. It means you trust him in the same way that you have to trust the Perrine Bridge when you drive across it to go to Jerome. You have to trust Jesus to save you and to deliver you into his kingdom when you die, but also it happens even before that. You receive eternal, eternal life now. And so if you would like to do that, bow your head with me and pray this prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose from the dead, that you conquered sin and death. And now I put my faith in you. Lord, I trust in you to save me. So be my savior, be my Lord. In your name I pray, amen. Let's take the bread. The bread is the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And, you know, you, you think about, all, you know, all the, the information we were confronted with this morning through Jonathan and just realizing the terrible evil that is constantly in this world, that's constantly been a part of this world, that Jesus came and that all, all of that evil somehow was placed on him and it, and it broke him. My evil. my sin. Lord, as we hold this bread, we realize that it took a radical act to reconcile us to our maker. And so thank you Lord Jesus, for giving your body to be broken for us. Bless the bread now as we remember, Lord, in your name, amen. Let's take the bread. Lord, your blood shed for us. Life is in the blood. Lord, you gave your, literally gave your life. Your, your life 
in our place. And so there's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So we rejoice in that, Lord. And God, I pray that, that you would awaken in us a spirit of courage, boldness in these last days, that Lord, we would, I just, Lord, receive that word this morning, that there are things worth dying for, that we don't want to be a, the, the, the play it safe kind of people in these last days who cloister away and try to avoid everything, but that we would live fearlessly. This perfect love, your perfect love casts out all fear. And so you may be calling somebody here this morning to go overseas and to rescue children or to minister to them in one of these homes and help them gain back their childhood. You may be calling us to places that are dangerous and challenging. But death is our servant, ultimately. It serves us. It serves us in life. And ultimately, when we breathe our last, it'll usher us into your presence. So we literally have nothing to fear. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking the nails into your hands and feet. Spear into your side, crown of thorns into your brow. Bleeding and dying for us, bless the cup now. In your name we pray, amen. Let's all stand. So please, if you can, stop and visit Jonathan and Debbie back at the table in the foyer. And uh, next week we will be back into the book of Nehemiah. And man, oh man, it's going to get super exciting in Nehemiah, let me tell you. But church, have a great week. And remember, we're not called to change the world, but you can change somebody's world this week. That's a great word, isn't it? That God, God gave us through Jonathan. You, you can't go change the world, but there's somebody in your life this week whose world you can change. So go do that in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. You're dismissed. <laughs>